Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, after having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Hi friend, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening to a very special bonus episode of the Finding Something Real podcast. We did one of these last month as well. Um, We had a special guest who came on the podcast just to chat about the hard questions that Tori had. And today we have that same guest back again to just address any question that Lou from Italy has. And I just want you to know that this is a very large episode, and hopefully it will all upload (laughs) correctly. Um, But go ahead and pause it, you know, partway through. It's a lot to digest, but it's a really powerful conversation um, about things that matter. And so I'm so thankful, first of all, uh, for the privilege of getting to have this conversation in real life with Lou and Alan. And secondly, um, to Alan Crostick, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the time and the effort and just the intention that you put into these types of conversations. Um, this is now, I believe, the third time um, that I've recorded an episode with you. And each time, it's just been fantastic. So for those of my friends who are podcasters who are listening to this later, listen to Alan. Um, I'm sure he'd be on your program. He's kind of amazed me with the way that he's cared for these conversations. So Alan, I hope that you listen to this later. I know that I said a lot of those things at the end of this conversation, but I cut that part out, you know, in the interest of time. Speaking of time, my children are knocking at the door. So enjoy this episode, friend. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and I'm so glad that you are listening um, in on season four, where I've been inviting co-hosts on to share their personal stories, and also inviting guests to address some of my co-hosts' honest questions. I want to start today by welcoming back this month's co-host, Lou. Earlier this month on the podcast, she shared her story, as well as some genuine objections and questions she has about Christianity. We've been talking with some fantastic guests about some of those topics that she brought up. But if you missed that intro episode, I encourage you to go back and listen. Um, We'll make sure that there's a link to that and the other episodes in the show notes. But you definitely want to hear Lou share her story 
um, prior to this conversation. Um, but I'm so glad she's back. Welcome back, Lou. Hi, thank you for having me again. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for keeping on coming back. I mean, at different times and just fitting it in your schedule. I know you're it's, a very busy It's always woman. real fun. It's really, <laughs> I really like having these conversations with you. I really do. Oh, oh, I really, I really love you. And I love talking about these things with you as well. It's like probably one of my favorite things. So thank you for, for coming back. Too. <laughs> um, today, friend, we have a very special returning guest. Um, Alan Krostick is a passionate guy who loves to talk about why he believes the story of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and saving humanity is more than just some made-up fairy tale. Um, and it's actually the best thing to ever happen to humanity. And I'm so excited to welcome him back, my friend Alan. Welcome back, Alan. Great. Thanks. Good to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm so glad. I haven't scared you away yet either. No, no, no. <laughs> Alan, you've been so gracious. You came on um, and spoke the, the first time on this podcast back in April last year. We spoke about um, the resurrection, I believe, then. And Lou, that was the very first time that you co-hosted with me. That was, yeah, I was we there. We talked about that. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> that was a, actually that was March. We recorded in March. It went out in April. Yeah, but it went out in April. Yeah, it, it was, was probably very... this time of the. It was probably like around this time of the year. Exactly a year. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. a couple of weeks away from when we're now. Yeah, and if who knew? Yeah. Who knew we'd be doing this again? <laughs> yeah, well, isn't that cool? Like a year and later. Was, and it was different because we didn't have we weren't using Zoom to record, so we didn't get to see each other's no. faces. Although no. I could see and your I was face. actually with Janelle. <laughs> yeah. And you'd had like the most emotional day of your life. Yeah, and I was crying. <laughs> but yeah. today I'm not. So. Yeah. Well, good. That's that's definitely an improvement. <laughs> well, the, and the reason for those people who didn't listen to me and haven't listened to the first episode, the reason you were crying was and, and I'm sure there's been other emotional days um it was because you were our exchange student uh living with us from Italy we were eight months into your exchange when uh all the lockdowns happened around the world and um, yeah. the hardest hit area at that time was northern northern Italy and which is exactly mm -hmm. where you're from and the exchange yep. program that uh <laughs> sent you to us said all students regardless of where they're from, need to go back to their home countries. And I think in the matter of less than a week, you needed to leave, and it was just unexpected, and yeah. you had just found out. Yeah. So it was pretty traumatic. What are they? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, hey, why don't you come co-host a podcast with me about something you're not sure you believe in? <laughs> what a nice host mom you have. Uh, but we had a good time. I remember. Look at us now. I know. Well, people know that oh. I'm not, you know, unfair to you because you keep on coming back. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it means and it wasn't that bad. I enjoyed bad. it. It wasn't that bad. You enjoyed it. And when you and I recorded our first episode together, we talked about Alan. And we, we said, hey, why don't we invite him back on to come actually like dive into some of these yeah. hard, harder questions? Yeah. So, Lou, cool. go for it. 
he's here. He's here to ask, like, answer whatever you Wait, want. Don't just, <laughs> you know, I cannot, I, it, that's. All right, all right. Um, Too much like a, Yeah, yeah. Please give me a topic. Like, where do I okay. start? All right. Okay. all right, all right. Here we go. Here we go. I, I think I can recall some of these questions. So one okay. of the things that you said when we were talking, and actually one of the things that you filled out in the Google form when you, mm -hmm. you applied to be a co-host, which, by the way, if you are a young woman listening to this and you are questioning faith and you're listening to this thinking, this isn't a horrible podcast and maybe I could trust this co-host situation, would you please apply to be a co-host? I'm still looking for some co-hosts for the, the rest of this year, and this is a little plug that I would love for you to apply just go to my website, findingsomethingreal.com. Look for Be My Co-Host at the top of the page. You're going to watch an awkward video of me um, inviting you on and telling you all the details. And then there's an application that you can fill out. But Lou, when you filled out... <laughs> end of commercial. Um, Lou, when you <laughs> filled out that application, one of the things you said, one of your questions was about the actual lore of Christianity. Oh, yeah. Okay. I can talk about that. Okay. Yes. So the thing is, the thing is, and this is a kind of my recurring theme, I guess. Um, I grew up a, a Catholic, you know, in a, in a Italian Catholic culture kind of thing, um, where it's really the norm, you know, to be um, to be around the church and around Christianity, and but I feel like we tend we tend to um, uh, take from for granted some information um or at least it's everything is really um like about heaven and hell and god in general probably and sin and all of that it's really like a like a show like you know a big um yeah just kind of like a show best <laughs> that's the best way are you saying by show do you mean they feel like by show, do you mean you think feel like people are just kind of going through the motions of everything? Is that I mean, what you mean? No, I mean like everything is really, um, well, you know, like um, dramatic and not like. Do I don't know how much you know about like Dante's Inferno? Yeah. Okay. But that's like literally how people picture okay. hell. Ah, I gotcha. That's. What I mean when you talk about show, like it's a, it's a, I don't know, like a performance or something. Like it's kind of like you know, um, really like it makes me think about, you know, like theater or maybe watching a movie or reading a book, and you just take that and apply it to normal things, right? To uh, religion, like actual, like a natural belief system it's really hard okay. to describe but um it's just so we don't really talk about um you know having a relationship with god and what it means to um actually believe and you know pray and have conversations with god and reading the bible which i mean from my experience um in the u.s and with janelle and her family it's a big part of of um being a christian um for for you but that's not something i grew up with so um usually when you don't really um get to have doubts or questions about um how things um work in more of a practical way like a like a actual 
um, like, okay, then what is sin? What happens if I sin? Um, then the answer you would get is you have to go to a priest and um, tell him how you sin, and he will make you go to the corner, to the corner, light a candle, and ask Mary to forgive you with a prayer that you are that, but you don't, you know, you know the prayer by heart and you just say it. It's not something you kind of make up on the spot. It's not a conversation you have with God, like we did before the episode, you know. Um, so it's more like technicalities, I guess. Yeah, kind of going through a lot of um, it, it. And I think, tell me, to, tell me if I have you correctly. It sounds like to me what you're saying is in the tradition you were brought up in, mm -hmm. um, one's relationship with God was a matter of a ritual. Would yeah. that be a good way to put it? Versus yeah. being yeah, a definitely. personal relationship with him. Yeah, and being, um, being a ritual, it's kind of like, go big or go home, you know? Okay. Um, so, and so it's really like, you know, um, either you have everything figured out and you have no issues with, like you go to church every Sunday and you pray every day and then you are fine. You do you, um, you're good. If you don't, um, then you are a bad person, right? they don't really tell you what's going to happen to you. Like the only formation is given to you is literally Dante's Inferno, like the fiery pits of hell um, with Satan on, bottom, on the bottom, you know, and um, screaming souls going around circles. It's not really reliable like a guy in the medieval ages wrote that. Um, why are we basing, like, why are you teaching me this in Sunday school? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Checking him as a as a you know the source. So I guess my question is, um, if we want want to talk about that part of the application that I filled out, um, then um, this is definitely something I don't really understand. It just I really don't really can comprehend how it works. I guess um, like the only way I can picture something like hell or heaven is the ritual part of it. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so there, there's there, there's several things I feel like I want to say in response to that. Um, you know, because you're talking about like um, some of the things with coming up through your tradition, you feel like there's a lot of ritual involved. There's a lot of, um, and pardon me if I'm not putting it the right way, having to jump through various religious hoops, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like much of your yeah. understanding of things like heaven or hell is not so much derived from scripture as it is to things like Dante or perhaps Milton's Paradise yeah. Lost or something like that, right? Um, mm -hmm. So a couple things first. Um, have you ever read C.S. Lewis? No. Are you familiar with him? Yes, Lewis I is am our... familiar, but I've never read his book. Okay. He's um he's a, he's a fantastic writer, but he's famous for what he champions, known as mere Christianity. And what does he mean by mere Christianity? By mere Christianity, he's talking about those central truths, which comprise the Christian worldview. You know, the idea that one God exists, and two, God has revealed Himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the rest of the stuff is just working out the details, right? So, 
I still want to answer the stuff that you're talking about. I'm not going to, I'm not just going to shove it under the rug, but I want to mention the things that it sounds like you're, you're, you're focusing on are what we would probably call more like the details, not really so much the central truths, right? Mm -hmm. So regardless of what one's understanding is of the nature of hell, um, Jesus talks about hell a lot and talks about it even more so than heaven. Um, and we can talk about the nature of hell. Um, I know that, um, um, you know, when, when Janelle said you had questions about the lore, I, I didn't know if you meant like, you know. I meant like anything in general, probably like you could, you could bring up anything really. And okay. it's just, it's really general question, I guess. Um, but. Okay. See, um, cause a lot of times people will say, well, how do I know this stuff and that happened in the New Old Testament is true and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Right. And what I'd like to focus on is this. If Jesus is who he said he was, and if he rose from the dead, Christianity follows, regardless of whether everybody has everything worked out about hell, regardless of whether we look at the hypocrisy of so-called Christians in the world, regardless of whether you think the Old Testament is inerrant or without error through and through, or whether the concept of inerrancy even entails things or um, like scientific precision or historical precision or whatever, those are all in-house debates, in-house questions. Um, the question is, you know, where are you on whether God exists and two, whether Jesus was God and, and died and rose from the dead? Um, those are the main questions. If you answer those questions, either one of them in the negative, these other questions are, are kind of irrelevant. It doesn't matter. So you don't really have to have like an opinion on, on how stuff like hell or heaven works work for you to actually you know call yourself a christian is it enough to just say i believe in god and jesus christ and i think he rose from the dead yeah so th so there's there's three parts to the christian message all right um that, that 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 are that i would say are 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 among those salvation issues in romans mm -hmm. 10 9 paul says if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and you believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved, all right? Mm -hmm. Now, within that passage, you find three things. You find uh, death, deity, resurrection, all right? It affirms Jesus died on the cross, deity that Jesus was God. Now, the word Lord, he says, if you confess Jesus is Lord, admittedly, the word Lord could take on several different meanings. It could mean master, or -hmm. it could also be, the, uh, be referring to the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, all right? Well, in verse 13 of that same chapter, Paul makes it clear what he means by that. Verse 13, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is quoting Joel 2.32, whereby Lord is referring to Yahweh. So Paul is basically saying, if you confess in, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and oh, by the way, by Lord, I mean Jehovah, I mean God, and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's, there's our part of the equation and there's God's part of the equation. God's part of the equation is, you know, the death, deity, resurrection part. Mm -hmm. Our part of the equation is where we say, I do. You know, kind of like, you know, when you get married to somebody, you might know everything that there is to know about that person. You might have all the knowledge about that person and know more about them than anybody else. But if you haven't been married to them, if you don't say, I do, then in the eyes of the state and in the eyes of God, you're not married to that person. Something needs to happen. And that's that commitment piece. 
where we're basically saying, Lord, I trust in you. I give my life to you. To, to give you a, a story, there's a, um, there's a philosopher that I, that I really love. He was very, very instrumental when I had a lot of questions coming to the faith. He's a Catholic philosopher. He's Catholic. Mm-hmm. He's not Protestant. He used to be Protestant, um, but he's Catholic. He's very Christ-centered. And he says, he says, this is the primary scandal with the Catholic Church today. And this is, he's saying this as a Catholic. He teaches in Boston College. And he says, every year with my incoming students, I give them a survey. And on that survey, there's the question, imagine that you died and you're standing before the gates of heaven. And God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? Now, he says, almost every Protestant knows the right answer to to that question. He says, at least what I've found in my experience. He says, but among my Catholic students, I usually get this. Um, I don't know. I've tried to live a good life. Um, be merciful. I mean, that would be my answer. Would the answer be because I believe in God? No, it wouldn't what's even be that. Like, what's the answer to Brad? The answer, yeah, the answer would be this. All right, the answer would be, and, and this is the primary scandal of the Catholic Church, according to Craved. He goes, he says, when you read the, the, the Catholic Fathers, um, the Catholic writings, you discover that they're just as Christ-centered as modern-day Protestantism is. He says, so I'm happy to eat all the food that Mother Church puts on the table for me. The problem is, pastorally speaking, that food isn't always put on the plate. The right answer would be this. On one hand, God, there's no reason you should let me into, into your heaven because there's nothing I could do on my own to make up for my sins, except I'm placing my trust in Jesus. In his work, he lived the perfect life on my behalf that I've never been able to do. And he died the death that was my penalty because of how I live. And based in trust on him, trust in him that his perfect life is going to be imputed to me by virtue of my union with him. And the, the, the death he died for me, that's the only reason I'm putting my trust in him. That's the answer. That's the keystone of salvation. And it's so funny because so many people will hear that message and then their, their, their knee-jerk reaction will go right back to, well, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to do the best I can. But one of the things scripture tells us is that in God's eyes, our righteousness is like filthy rags. One of the central truths of Christianity um, is that it teaches us about the real serious flaws of real Christians, that none of us um, can earn our salvation. It's a free gift from God by his grace. Grace means unmerited favor, right? That our best efforts aren't good enough. Our best efforts are too tainted. Our moral efforts are too tainted. They're too um, feeble and falsely motivated to ever merit our salvation. Um, it's solely by placing our trust in Jesus. Um, that's it. Um, you know, so I, here's the thing. I mean, granted that we, we have, we have all have lots of traditions, right? I mean, praying before our meal is a tradition. There's nowhere where it says in the Bible, thou must pray before your meal. It does say give thanks in all circumstances. It says that, but so many of the times I see Jesus um, in the gospels, I'm thinking of, of Mark chapter seven in particular. We, I, I facilitate a men's Bible study every week and we just, finished talking about Mark 7, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Jesus's day, um, confronted him because his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Back then, they would, to be ceremonially pure, they would wash their hands. They would add traditions 
on top of God's commandments. And every time they did that, it's like Jesus is saying, you know, that they would confront him with tradition and he would confront them not with more tradition, but with scripture. I can't think of one time where Jesus does not confront them by going back to the word of God, not tradition. And he's basically telling them, you guys are missing the forest for the trees. You're, you're, you're married to all these little religious, you know, loops that, uh, hoops that you're jumping through and everything. But it's like, God cares about what's inside of you in your heart. And often that's why he, you know, he, he said, you guys are whitewashed tombs, man. He says, you know, you guys are going through all these motions and looking great on the outside. He says, I'm concerned about the inside. You know, do you know me? You know, um, am I tracking with you a little bit here? Or am I kind of going off on left field? I actually don't know. I mean, I'm following you on your, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, let's just go on. <laughs> But if, if you say, I don't know, that's probably a bad sign. I'm probably going off on left field. Oh, no. The but, thing um, is, I, I don't even know what was my question. So, like, the regarding, regarding So, I'm trusting you with the answer. Regarding hell. Let's just talk yeah. about it since you brought it up. All right. I think the best understanding of hell is what we find. I think it's in 1 Corinthians. It might be 2 Corinthians. But where it talks about the essence of hell is being separated from the presence of God, right? Now, the Bible can describe a lot of things in figurative language. Um, I'm inclined, and I think you've talked to, if you talk to most theologians today, they would more than likely tell you that the imagery of fire and darkness and so forth um, are metaphorical to give you an idea of how horrible hell is. Um, but what makes it horrible is because it's the separation from God. God who, by definition, is the source of all comfort and peace and love. And see, at the, at the final analysis, what basically God does is he gives us what we want. Those of us who want nothing to do with him, just want to live in the self, he finally says, okay, have it your way. And what we find in that circumstances, when we just live totally in the self and he removes, removes himself from us, when the source of all peace and love and kindness you know, removes himself from us, there's nothing left but inner torment. And torment is something that's internal, not external, right? So the imagery of hell when we read about it in scripture is meant more to suggest than it is to define. Um, I mean, and it would have to be, because think about it, well, which is it? Is it all darkness or is it fire? You know, it talks about the worm that will never die. Well, okay, is this, is this a temporal worm? Well, if it's a temporal worm, if it's the worm that's in time, what's it doing in the eternal state? Or is it an eternal worm? What, what, what is it eating? You know, um, some of this imagery would be used like that to convey these ideas. So the idea of Dante is more a product of medieval torture chambers. Yeah. All right. Um, and I'm not saying that that means the concept of, male, of hell is milder. I'm sure it's still probably much worse than our literal misinterpretations of that imagery. But we cannot but, just say that. We cannot say for sure. Like, it's, I feel like from what you just said, um, it is kind of arrogant to try and um, say what hell looks like. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would even say arrogant. I mean, I think sometimes people are mistaken. None of us really know. Yeah, but like, no, I'm, yeah, I'm talking more about like um, 
like saying that if you don't think hell looks that way, then you are again going to hell. Yeah, I don't think you're. Um... Whether you go to heaven or hell is going to be what you do with Jesus Christ. Yeah. You're not going to be sent to hell because okay. you have the wrong view of hell or the right view of hell or the right view of heaven. Um, um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm just kind of bringing it back um, to um, my, experience with, my experience with the church here. I'm just sure. comparing but okay. I'm kind of going on a tangent, I guess. Well, I guess I have a question, Alan, kind of following up yeah. on that. One of the things that Lou said when we talked, just the two of us, was that she's always envied, in terms of people of any religion, people who can just believe. And what you yeah. just described about hell, you know, people who choose to reject God, is that different than somebody who says, I want to know if there's a God, but I don't know. I don't, I can't see him. And how does God respond to somebody like, like Lou here, who's like, yeah. I, I really would like to know, but I feel like there's so much that I don't understand. And where would I even yeah. begin? Cause that feels, I mean, I don't know Lou, but how do you feel about that? Like what he just said, do you feel like you're actively rejecting God or just like, I don't know. No, I don't. I mean, I don't feel like I am. But I also don't feel like I'm, um, I don't feel like I'm actively rejecting, but I don't feel like I'm actively, um, how do you say it? Like, um, pursuing. Pursuing. Yeah. Or, well, yeah. or accepting. I, I don't, I don't really know. I can't really think of the word. I just had two coffees. I'm all kind of. Hey, you are you know. are in good company. I um, it's so funny because when I when I was on here with um with Tori, I the night before, I, I whatever reason I didn't get a lot of sleep, and the same things happened this time. Last two nights, I think I've averaged three hours of sleep. Oh no! So you have my sympathy. So if it seems like I got some brain yeah, fog going on, I'm not really. Forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I am. I mean, I'm. Yes. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm really in my right mind, but I'm trying to like say um, what I want to say. I'm just kind of missing yeah. the words, but um, yeah, I don't feel like I'm actively rejecting. I also don't feel like I'm completely sure, you know, so I'm not actively yeah. rejecting, but I'm not, um, I'm Tasting not expressing chocolate. my opinion. Yeah, I'm not testing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, yep. The thing is, um, yeah, so I wonder if um, if I died today, what would happen? Like, would, so would it be, like, is my not being sure enough for me to not get in a chance? Like, yeah. I know so, you um... cannot, like, it's... Yeah, you said it's yeah. Just go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So um, I I hear what you're saying. I asked this to a pastor back during the time where I wasn't sure. Um, prior to uh, um, uh, 1996, that was when I finally made a you know acknowledged Christ as my Lord and Savior. It got to the point 
where, okay, you know, I, when I was on, like on a seesaw for the longest time. Alan, how old were you in 1996? Because people are going to want to know, and I know... <laughs> <laughs> I know that's calling you out, but were you were you a little kid or were you a little older? Obviously, I was five years old. I, I, I don't I don't know why y'all would think otherwise. Um, no. I was I, I was twenty okay. um, in nineteen ninety six, but um, I was really confused. I didn't know what I believed. Um, you know, I I know I shared on 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 our previous episode. He's got an amazing story, um, yeah. by the way. Go back and listen to that if you'd like. It really was a cool story. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it was something significant happened to me. And, um, you know, God really showed up in a powerful way. But in 1996, I, I had my first philosophy class. And, and by the way, for, for three years, because this happened in 93, where God showed up in a powerful way, I didn't really share it with a lot of people because I didn't want to look wacky. Um, I wasn't sure what people would think of me. Dude, that guy's gone off the deep end. What's going on? And when I went to that class, it, it wakened up the critical part of my mind. Um, I really started to think critically about the faith for the first, first time and wondered, could the events of that night three years ago be explained away naturalistically? Because barring that, like, how do I know? How do I know that what I've been taught is true? I mean, if I was in the Middle East, I'd more than likely be a Muslim, right? If I was born in another part of the world, I'd more than likely be a Hindu. So when, aren't my beliefs just a historical and geographical accident? Um, isn't that what's going on? So, you know, so I wasn't just kind of shoving it under the rug. I remember praying, you know, God, I don't know if you're there or not. If you're not, then I'm just talking to the ear. But if you are there, please show me who you are. Maybe you think I'm the most stubborn person in the world, but I got to know, who are you? And, um, and I became obsessed. One week I was an atheist, one week I was a, a theist. You know, um, back and forth, back and forth we go. And it was maddening. But the more and more I dug, the deeper I dug, um, the harder and harder it became for me to deny God's existence in general and also to deny the truth of the resurrection in particular. No other religion, and you can fact check me on this. I think, I, I think even someone who's an atheist would agree to this, I would think. Um, no other religion out there has the type of evidence um, surrounding the event of the, of the resurrection like we do with Christianity. It, it, it's just not there. Um, so here's the deal, you know, you're asking like, well, what, what does God, what does God think you know if I ask my pastor like if I die today where would I go and you know he says well you know here's the thing Alan it says in scripture whoever you know seek and you will find you know if you're really seeking me you will find me and there's a passage in Acts chapter 17 26 and 27 um, that basically says from one man God created every person in the world and sets the times and locations for which they will live so that those will reach out to him. Some have suggested that that very well could mean that God knows that if you would accept him in certain circumstances, he'll make sure that you're placed in those certain circumstances and get to hear the gospel. Um, and for that, and if that's true, then no one's lost by geographical or historical accident. But it also seems to me that there's many people out there that aren't on a truth quest. They're just on a happiness quest. They don't really want to know. Now, I don't think that goes for you, Lou, because 
frankly, you wouldn't be on here. It would seem to me if it did. Um, I don't think that applies to you. I don't think you, you fall into that category of someone who just doesn't care. Um, you know, but I mean, are, are, is there such a thing as culpable ignorance? Well, yeah, sure. Here's what I think. I don't think that God would hold someone responsible for not obeying a knowledge they could not have. I do think he'd hold them responsible for disobeying a knowledge they could have. So like to, to give you an example, um, say a mother is walking down the hallway and she passes a room where her little toddler's in it and sees him playing with a bottle and keeps walking. And then later comes back and looks in that room and the toddler's laying on the floor motionless and she discovers that bottle was a bottle of uh, poison, of cer a certain kind, rat poison. She could rightly say, I didn't know but she would be culpable in her ignorance because she was in a position to know and just didn't care to follow up. I think what God does for us is he gives us enough evidence so that those who want to find him can have their beliefs justified, but not so much evidence so that those of us who don't want him are forced to feign loyalty. Um, because as the old saying goes, a person changed against their will is of the same opinion still. Um, feigned loyalty is nothing more than rebellion waiting for an opportunity. Um, he wants free lovers. Um, and in terms of, you know, I, I wish I could have that type of certainty or whatever. Um, one of the uh, philosophers I really love, Dr. William Lane Craig, one time said, don't confuse knowledge for certainty. Certainty is will of the wisp. Um, you know, it's, it, it comes and it goes, right? The important thing is, does my C, does my conclusion follow logically from my premises? Does my C follow logically from my A and my B? And I like what C.S. Lewis once said, you know, where he was talking about faith and he was speaking of faith in a, in a different way than it's usually talked about in scripture. But he says, you know, faith in the sense that I'm talking about it is holding on to what your reason has accepted despite your changing moods, despite your changing emotions. Because he says, your emotions are, your moods are going to change, regardless of what path your reason takes. And he says, you know, he says, you know, now that I'm a, a Christian, sometimes I have moods where the whole thing looks very improbable. He says, but I can tell you something else. When I was an atheist, I had moods where Christianity looked terribly probable. And he says, these moods are going to war against your real self, no matter what, 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 path you take. So we must practice the necessary virtue of faith. He says, unless you can tell your emotions where to get off, you can never either be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro, whose beliefs are really dependent on the weather and your latest state of di digestion. He says, therefore, it's necessary to practice the habit of belief, the habit of faith. Um, faith is not believing something without evidence. That's not faith. That's not biblical faith. The word in the Bible for faith is the Greek word pistis, which really means active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. God made our minds. He wants us not only to love us with all of our hearts, but also with all of our mind. He wants us to love him with the totality of our being. And you know, when I talked about, you know, the central truths of, of, of mere Christianity, 
you know, the resurrection um, being one of them, you know, Jesus being God, dying and rising again. When it comes to the Christian religion, guess where the evidence is the strongest? In those three areas. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but uh, I'll stop there. Can I add just one thing? And then, Lou, I'd love to hear your response to this. But how big yes. is the Bible, Alan? How, how many books are in the Bible? How many? How large? There are 60, 66 books in the Protestant Bible. Okay. The, the Catholic Bible has a few more in the, the, the intertestamental period, okay. which they call the... Yeah, go ahead. 60, no, no, 66 books. And uh, it's taken... It takes my husband and I, if we just read two chapters every day, about three years to get through the entire thing. Do you know what verse I read this morning and shared on social media this morning? What's that? No. Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men and women would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What I love about this and why I shared it this morning is because Paul, and I can't remember who the other guy was with him, um, they were reasoning with people who didn't know God. Yes. They were reasoning yes. with people who had some agnostic beliefs, who believed in different things, yeah. but they didn't know Jesus, and he was talking to them. Um, yeah. and sharing with them. And I just thought, as soon as you shared that, I thought, what are the chances? What are the yeah, chances? Yeah, that's really today? cool. Wow. I know. So maybe, Lou, that was <laughs> that's for awesome. you. And I just wanted to make sure that you knew that that was yeah. here in Nevada. It happens, like, really often. <laughs> we talk about something, and it turns out uh, you just read it in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I know. Okay, well, one of the things, Lou, that you said, and I'd love to hear how Alan addresses this, and, and I actually thought this was really compelling and interesting. You were sharing about in the Old Testament where, um, you know, people are commanded to, like, stone people who are uh, doing oh, things okay. out of yeah. sin, uh, like women caught in adultery and stuff, and how if the Bible was written today, it would be different. That And you made a pretty good argument that um, culturally things just are different. And so maybe the Bible should have different rules um, than it did back then. So am I right oh, in kind oh, of paraphrasing okay. you? Yeah, can I? Okay. Um, so what, what I said, um, or well, I don't really remember how I said it, but um, what I was trying to say um, was that um, I think, in my opinion, um, it is important to remember that um, no matter what, um, society kind of shapes how you, um, you know, tradition shapes how you view religion, even if you don't want it to, as you said earlier. Um, so I think that even, you know, writing um, the Bible, um, you know, the society and culture probably played a, a role in, you know, um, choosing how to explain um you know the teachings of God, or like giving examples, or how to how they tell stories and all of that stuff. 
because it would it would um nowadays like our culture would shape for example how we explain um general you to you use a metaphor like um getting the co the free coffee every day oh yeah uh, for me a while ago right mm -hmm. I, th I thought that was a great analogy, by the way. It's not mine. <laughs> I stole it from <laughs> Charles Price. You wouldn't, you, that metaphor would have made sense back then, and it probably will not make sense uh, in a hundred years, right? So um, I just, I just think that some of the teachings and or the way they are taught um, might have been influenced by. Um, the norms of the society and the culture and the tradition. So what I don't really understand is like where we draw the line. Like we we chose to draw the line at stoning people to death, right? It makes sense hmm. to draw the line I there. Um, but there are also different things that um, might have been shaped by culture and tradition um i was making a point last time probably with saying this like i think i but i don't remember it anymore um but yeah that was my that was my point uh, when we talked in the yeah. first episode and um yeah so i don't know if you want to um say something to that yeah absolutely um so there's there's three different ways I think I can respond to this because I hear three different things being mentioned in that. One um, isn't a lot of the things we read in the Bible uh, pertaining to their culture and their time, um, and I think that's right. Um, the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us, right? Mm -hmm. I think any Christian needs to affirm that. Um, the biblical authors are writing to their contemporary audience. So some, and which is why it's important to understand the cultural context, right? To understand the authorial intent. Um, that was one of the things that started the, uh, the, the Protestant re uh, revolution, yeah. to be honest. Um, because we're like, no, I, I, don't, I don't need someone to interpret for me. I need, to, I need to go back and find the authorial intent and understand the cultural backdrop of the audience that the, the author was speaking to. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think any, any Christian is going to enthusiastically agree with that point. So, but even though it was written to that particular audience, it's still written for us to learn. Maybe not to us, but for us that we can still learn from them. Um, now, the other thing is, and I don't, I'm not sure if you're implying or saying this or not, but sometimes you'll hear, pe hear people say that the Bible, like other religious beliefs, are too socially and culturally conditioned to be taken as the absolute truth of the matter that will sometimes be a objection people will throw out. Um, but here's the problem with that. That statement itself is a religious belief that also has been socially conditioned and culturally conditioned. So if that's true, you end up cutting off the branch you're sitting on because all Sorry, of our beliefs about what, everything. What do you mean? What do you mean when you say it is also religious belief? So, if somebody makes the claim that no religious belief or claim can be true because every religious belief has been influenced by that person's culture and mm -hmm. place and time, right? But that claim itself, the claim 
that no belief, religious belief, can be true because it's shaped by a person's culture and time is itself shaped by that person's culture and time. Yeah. So it's like that, that claim is laying down conditions that the claim itself fails to meet and therefore can't even get started. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe that's too abstract. I don't know. No, no, um, I think I get it. I think I get what you mean. Yeah. It would be along the lines of like a self-refuting statement, like someone saying there's no such thing as truth. And you can ask them, mm -hmm. is that true? You know, um, yeah. you know kind of one of those. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all, all beliefs are socially conditioned and culturally conditioned. Okay, is that belief socially and culturally conditioned? Would you believe that if you had been born in medieval Spain, for example? No, probably not. Okay, well, you can't really use that as an objection. Um, now, in terms of the parts in the Bible um, where it talks about like someone getting stoned for adultery, um, I think in some cases, the perceived harshness of that punishment just testifies to how, God, how seriously God takes that sin. The other thing is this, you have to understand at that time, Israel was a theocracy. This was not intended. The laws of that theocracy were not intended for every culture and every time. They weren't intended to be timeless. They were provisional. It was preparing Israel as a nation. A theocracy is where God is the head, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for us, we look at that, we look at that as too harsh because for us in our secular and increasingly promiscuous culture, um, we're horrified at that prospect. But I think Israel's laws expressed how intensely God hates that sin. Um, and I, I think of like Ephesians 5.32, we really get the idea um, of how God sees marriage. You know, um, Paul writes, you know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then he, and then he says, this mystery is profound. Um, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And see, and the union, union of a man with his wife in marriage is like a living symbol of the union between Christ and his church. So to violate that bond through immoral or illicit sexual intercourse was considered sacrilege. It was profaning that union that Christ has with his people. Um, so in the ancient laws, we see how seriously God takes this. Now, we may be offended by this, but who are we to say that we're right in our estimation and God is wrong? And I like, um, I like how one person put this is, you know, when we, when we look at something, we have to consider our own cultural and historical context. Um, there will be things your great grandchildren are going to be embarrassed about what you believe now. Mm -hmm. um, because that's just, that's what we always see. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, we can't look at that and say, well, that's obviously too harsh. That's wrong. Who's really wrong? Um, was it too harsh? Or are we just too, yeah, whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So do you think it's okay to kind of like mm, look at the Bible and say, so that happened. Um, and it was like that because it was a theocracy and Israel um, handled rules and laws that way. But now, nowadays, in our society, we handle things differently. So let's just take the meaning and kind of apply it um, how we can now. Um, and with time, it will change again. Is that an okay thing to do? Doesn't that go against um, 
the harshness with which God looks at that sin. Yeah, so, so even by the New Testament, they were no longer a theocracy, right? I mean, when, when Jesus finds the woman, when they try to trap Jesus, the Jewish people, and they bring a woman that was caught in adultery before him, and they say, okay, Jesus, the law says that she must be stoned. What are you going to do? And Jesus responded to them. He said, okay, tell you what, he who is without sin, you cast the first stone. And one by one, they left, the oldest first and then the youngest. And then Jesus walks up to the woman. He says, is no one here to condemn you? And she says, no. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Why did he do that? I've always wondered. Okay, here's the deal. I love Jesus, right? He's like, I mean, that's the reason I do this podcast, right? But I've always wondered. His father, uh, with the theocracy, sets these rules, right? Clearly, you read in the Old Testament, like what Lou's saying, you know, yeah. there's some crazy harsh stuff in there. And then Jesus comes, the fulfillment of the law, by his own words, right? God in the flesh. Yep. And he doesn't do it. He does not take the stone. It's like, God's like, that's mine. And uh, I'm going to show you grace. So I, I, this is such an interesting conversation because um, I know you're familiar with Rachel Held Evans. She did this whole yes. thing where she like looked at old things in the Old Testament, and then tried to model her life after it, kind of as, um, and I'm not super familiar with her work, but I know enough to, to believe that her intent was, like, we can't trust uh, some of the stuff in the Old Testament to follow, right? But yes. I've always wondered, like, Jesus didn't come to say God the Father is wrong. He came to fulfill huh. the law. So as a right. Christian, I'm asking this question, why did he give grace in that moment? And why now, like, moving forward, do we follow that and not the other stuff? Yeah, so there, there's several things that can be said. First of all, when they brought Jesus, when they brought that woman to Jesus, first of all, they were they were going against the law with the way they did it. The law required that both parties be brought. So there's that. Um, you know, so first of all, they were just kind of, they were just trying to catch him anyway. Um, you all could also say he didn't have the earthly authority to do that, even though he was a son of God over all creation. But I think even more than that. I think it even comes down to just who he is. He's the one that made that law, and therefore he has the, uh, you know, he has, he has, it's kind of like he says in Romans, oh, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and um, harden whom I harden. And we can talk about what that means, because I used to think, is God actually hardening someone's heart? That sounds evil. What's up with that? That sounds jacked up. <laughs> um, you know, but, um, but I mean, I think about even like when, you know, he declared all foods clean. Um, remember in Mark? where it says Jesus Jesus said it's not what goes into a person but what comes out of a person that makes them unclean and then you have the parenthetical therefore Jesus declared all foods clean um you know uh, the eating with well not the eating with unwashed hands but like just various other things and I think because he was the fulfillment I mean you said it yourself the fulfillment of those things he was coming and creating a new covenant um you know and the idea is you know you know, the law was dead. They're dead to the law. And it's just kind of like the, the analogy of marriage. After the former spouse dies, you're free to marry a new one. We're dead to the law, so now we can, you know, marry into Christ in the new covenant. Um, and that's kind of the way I see it with what, with what he did there. Um, but, and, and the thing is, when you think back on those Old Testament laws, you know, even as harsh as some of them seemed, um, in actual practice, they may have been different from those, uh, those um, idealizations. 
Um, I'm thinking like penalties of children cursing their parents, things like that. That didn't have to be, oh, you're going to die. But it was put out there to show this is this is what can happen. Sometimes, you know, people would, you know, there'd be like a ransom or something like that, um, you know, to uh, uh, to pay for that particular sin. But the deal, I think what we take from that is that God still abhors those sins, even today. Um, but we don't live in a theocracy, right? So we don't, we, don't, we don't have that. So his judgment is delayed until judgment day. That's when all of us will give an account of our lives. But, but again, I still go back to this. And regardless of where you fall on that, what it really comes down to is, where are you on the resurrection? Right? Because, again, um, regardless of what you think, if Jesus is who he claims to be, and if he died and rose again, Christianity follows. That was the only thing I was ever concerned about back when I was agnostic. I understood that. I'm like, this other stuff could be confusing or whatever, but if that's true, if I have sufficient evidence to believe in that, um, the rest I can, you know, I, I might not be able to fully understand it at that time, but I can deal with that so long as I know that this actually happened. Um, anyway, does that make sense? I think it does. Um, and um, is, it, is it blasphemous if I say that I don't consider myself a Christian, but I really do no. think Jesus was a cool guy, okay? <laughs> no, I mean, there's lots of people that think, that's not that's, blasphemous. I mean, that's... Okay, okay. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's not sure. going to be like, I'm not going to point and no heretic, you know, no. Yeah, okay. um, no, not at all. Um, but it, it does make me wonder, has anybody talked to you about the evidence behind the resurrection? We just had a conversation. On Janelle's podcast? <laughs> okay. Stephanie Roussel, um, Stephanie gave her some resources and some, uh, and, and even had recorded an episode, which I'll link in the show notes, about 10 facts about the resurrection as well. Okay. But I, I think Lou, too, I don't know, um, I think it was C.S. Lewis, and Alan, you probably know, who said, um, you can't, I mean, it's, to say that Jesus is a cool person or like a good guy, yeah. he, he doesn't really give us that option. Um, no. What is the quote? You know, you know what I'm sure. I, I, I don't know I what don't exactly know. off the top of my head, but I know I the one you're referring to. He says, yeah. he says, people who say Jesus is a good guy or a good teacher, he goes, he didn't say things that allow us to say that. This is a guy that says, what you do with me will determine where you live eternity, where you spend eternity. This is someone who basically said, I and the father are one. Um, this is someone that called himself Lord of the Sabbath. One that says he has the, has the prerogative to forgive sins. Um, one that basically says all people throughout the earth will serve me with a service that is only supposed to be attributed to God. And we can talk about that. And that he will sit at the right hand of the power beside God and share God's throne with him. Um, someone who makes these claims is not the kind of person you can just say is a good teacher. He doesn't leave that option open to us. You know, he says he's either a liar by virtue of saying those things, or either he's a lunatic. Like, how, how's he put it? Like a guy who's on the same level of someone who thinks he's a poached egg, right? Or either he's who he claimed he meant to be. He says, but let's not come with any of that, he, in his words, he puts, not, not come with any, quote, that patronizing nonsense about him being a good teacher. He does not leave that option open to us. 
Um, and uh, I'm like, that's, that's, that's good. And, and we can talk about that. Um, I don't know if she went through uh, with you, Lou, over the, uh, what historians use. When historians look at documents, um, they look at various things. They look at how early it is. They look at various criteria of authenticity. These are criteria that if they're found um, present in a particular portion of the text, makes it a lot more likely that it was uh, a his an historical event or that it actually happened or that a person actually said something. Um, and so many of these statements, um, for many of these statements, this, these criteria of authenticity apply when it comes to Jesus making these radical claims about himself. And see, and that's one of the things that's so important about the resurrection, because if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, now I'm really going to pay attention to what he said about himself. I'm going to pay attention to everything he says, um, if he really did rise from the dead. So I guess that's why I'm asking, what, what, would be, what would be some of your reasons for maybe thinking he did not? It's not, the thing is that it's not really a, um, it's not really like, I don't have a list of facts that make me doubt. You know, I don't have a list of um, like reasons why I think, yeah, no, the resurrections didn't, didn't happen because this and this and this, like, it's just, um, it's just, I, it's hard for me to um, believe um, that there's a God in general. Okay. Yes. Um, um, but I cannot, I cannot tell you like exactly the reason why. Okay. See that, that, that's the part I want to chase after. That's the part I want to press. Um, because feelings come and go. Um, feelings are wonderful, but when it comes to evaluating truth claims, they don't really mean jack squat. Um, and I often use this example, and I, I, I think, because I listened to the first episode with you, and I, I think, Janelle, you, I could back this example. Um, you know, if I'm driving my car down the street and there's a tree oh, in front yeah, of me. Oh, yeah, the tree. The tree yeah, and I say, you know I what, I don't think it it's... you, <laughs> No, I, well, I, I stole it from somebody else, too, so hey, whatever. It, it, it's, all, it's all good. But, um, you know, if I'm driving down the street and I see a tree in front of me, and I say, well, it's just not meaningful to me that that tree is there. I really just don't care whether or not it's there or whatever. That, that tree is going to kill me. I'm going to run into it and it's going to kill me, regardless of whether it fits my deepest feelings or preferences. And that's why I keep saying, you know, at the end of the day, I evaluate what's true and false based upon what I think, not what I feel. I have to do my best at abstracting from the emotions. And one of the things I, I talked about, and maybe it, maybe it would be beneficial to kind of you know, kind of just talk about it in broad strokes again. When I was talking to Tori, I mentioned how there's three species of doubt. Um, there is factual doubt, there's emotional doubt, and there's what's called volitional doubt. Um, factual doubt, believe it or not, um, only accounts for what 15% of the people experience. 15% of the people, their doubts aren't based upon um, the evidential reasons for the faith, it's not. Uh, factual doubt deals with things of, you know, how can I know? 
that there's a God. And for that, I'll, you know, what, there's, there's arguments out there. You have what's called the Kalam cosmological argument, the idea that God's the best explanation for the origin of the universe. You have the argument from contingency, that God is the best explanation for why there's something rather than nothing. You had the fine-tuning argument, that God's the best explanation of the fine-tuning for intelligent life of the universe, within the universe. You have the moral argument, that God's the best explanation for objective moral values and duties. You know, and, and you can keep going with that. There's lots of arguments. Um, so is that what they're worried about? Usually if someone, if that's what they're worried about, you give them the answer, they're like, okay, cool, awesome, thanks. Or if they you know, have an objection, they'll raise it, but, but that's it. It's based upon evidential reasons, rational reasons. Um, usually if someone's experienced factual doubt, the only time sometimes where they might have a, um, an obstacle is, and a lot of times when teenagers go to college and this happens, let's say they're raised in a Christian home and they come back and they're like, I'm not sure I believe in Christianity anymore. Why? And the two most common answers are given this. Well, because I don't believe that the world was created in six days anymore. Okay. You know, if, if that's what they were brought up to believe, I myself am an old earth creationist. Um, I believe that, you know, that it was a lot longer than that. Um, and I'm not the only one that believes that, by the way. Many church fathers did. Augustine, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus. Um, many of them didn't believe that the earth was created in six 24-hour days either because that's not what they found for them when they interpreted Genesis. They saw something more figurative going on there, even though the idea was correct that God created it. But if they've grown up believing that, then that to them, that's not just a nail in Christianity's coffin. Or if they come back and say, I, I, I can't believe that the Bible was without error anymore. And, you know, I remember Habermas first teaching us on this, and, and he said, sometimes to show them the lack of force of that, I'll ask, and? Well, if the Bible's not an errand or the, you know, or, or if creation's more happened longer than six days, Christianity's not true. No, that's the non sequitur. Because again, if we can prove that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and if he died and rose again, Christianity follows. Regardless of how long it took for the creation of the earth, regardless of whether you have an inerrant Bible or not, I do think we have an inerrant Bible, but I'm just saying you can't get there from that. Um, so sometimes people get bogged down with pseudo problems and they're not thinking it through. But here's the other form of doubt. Sometimes you have what's called emotional doubt. So it could be that someone has some factual doubts and it festers and they don't get them answered. And now it starts to affect with other areas of their psyche. Or maybe just someone has emotional doubt by default. An emotional doubter can ask the same type of questions that a factual doubter does. It often masquerades as factual doubt. Because I'll ask questions like, okay, how do I know there's a God? How do I know Jesus rose from the dead? Stuff like that. But they're asking those questions for different reasons. Um, there's usually a lot of pain involved. Um, and they're usually ask what if questions. They're like, well, what if I'm wrong? And I like to answer, well, what if I'm right? You know, um, and uh, last time I used, I used this example, this would be like an ideal case. Um, let's say you have somebody and they're well, um, well informed about the evidence behind the historicity of the resurrection. But they come to you and they say, you know, I'm just, I have a lot of doubts. I'm just not sure if this Christianity thing's true. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Where are you on, uh, you know, death, deity, resurrection? Where are you on the uh, death of Jesus? 
do you believe he lived and he actually was crucified? Oh yeah, yeah, I believe that. That's about as sure as any historical fact there has ever been. Yeah, absolutely. That's multiply evidenced. Every historian believes that, sure. Okay. Where are you on the uh, divinity of Christ? Do you believe he was divine? Yeah, I, I understand the historical evidence behind that, that it makes it extremely likely that he said those things, sure. Okay. And what about the resurrection? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Do you have any questions about that? Well, I'm not saying I don't have any questions, but, but yeah, the, yeah, the evidence is compelling. Okay, why are we talking? Well, because I just wonder what if. What do you mean? Well, we, we live in a big world. How do, how do I know? I mean, if I was in the Middle East, I would be a Muslim or whatever. You know, that, that whole argument again. Okay, I mean, you've looked at the evidence, though. Yeah, yeah, I've looked at the evidence. Most of the doubt people struggle with is immune to the evidence. Someone like that, you can give them all the evidence in the world and they're just gonna what if it out of existence. And one of the things that I shared with Tori is that what if questions have no evidential value whatsoever. You can what if anything. Just, it's, just because it's possible you can be mistaken. It doesn't follow that it's reasonable to think that you are. Um, for example, I used the example last time, what if you have a tumor right now? Well, I have no reason to believe I do. Yeah, 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 but what if? You know, so I remember Habermas sharing this with us in class. So he'll say a lot of times to show the person the lack of force of that question, I'll ask, well, what if we're right? And they'll say, well, no, 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 I mean it. What if we're wrong? No, no, I mean it. What if we're right? In other words, I'm not going to give you all the evidence. This is, this is Habermas talking, not me, telling this imaginary person. I'm not going to give you all the evidence in the world when you're just going to what if it out of, out, of, out of the air, you give me evidence as to why we're wrong. Do you have any reasons? No, I just wonder what if. And for most people, that's the nature of the kind of doubt that they deal with. And for that type of doubt, it's not so much about getting more evidence because all the evidence in the world is not going to help a person that's dealing with that type of doubt. What they need is to know how to reign in their brain. They need to know how to stop themselves. Um, and there's, a, there, again, there's a great book. It's called Telling Yourself the Truth. And it has what's called misbelief therapy. And there's three steps to it. Um, one is locate the lies you tell yourself. Two is remove them. And three is replace them with truth. And this pretty much comes from the idea, most people don't realize this, but um, someone came, it was a psychologist that came up with what's called the ABC method. And he says, the problem is a lot of people in the world think that A's cause C's. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, A is, stands for the activating event. That's what happens to you in life. C stands for the consequence. So here's how most people think. The reason I'm miserable, C, is because A, my wife left me. Or A, I just got diagnosed with an incurable disease. Or A, I just lost my job, you know? And this uh, psychologist argued, he goes, generally speaking, A's don't cause C's because in between A's and C's are B's. And the B's are your beliefs about the A's. In other words, they're the beliefs about what happened to you in life. And what virtually every psychologist will tell you is that it's not what happens to you in life that makes you feel the way you do. It's how you download it. It's what you tell yourself about what happens to you in life that makes you feel the way you do. Um, 
And so, and this, this goes the same way when it comes to emotional doubt, whether it's emotional doubt aimed at the Bible, Christianity, whether it's emotional doubt aimed at something else. This can apply to anything, really. Um, it's what we're telling ourselves in our head. So I have a friend who, um, who, I, who I talked to several months ago who was having doubts. And it didn't take much time at all to realize that this, these are doubts over an emotional nature. And I was like, do you ever ask yourself when you have these doubts, hold on, wait, 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 wait. What reason do I have to think that's true? I'm not worried about what's possible. I'm worried about what's plausible or probable. That's what I'm worried about. Um, what reason do I have to believe that it's more plausible for me to believe this didn't happen than that it did? And once he started to learn to talk to himself that way, um, it really brought things down to manageable levels for him. Now, I don't know if that's what, if that applies any to you or not, maybe, maybe it doesn't. Um, the last type of doubt you have is volitional doubt. And that's the kind of doubt where someone feels like they've been burned, right? Like a good example of this would be someone like, let's say there's someone who used to come to church all the time. They used to teach Bible studies and now they don't come anymore. So let's say you're friends with this guy and you go talk to him. You say, hey, Bob, where have you been? What do you mean? You used to be at church all the time. I don't see you anymore. Are you not a Christian anymore? No, I'm still a Christian. Okay. Well, why don't I see you? And I just don't feel like it's relevant for me anymore. Hold on. It, this has to do with eternal life and it's not relevant? Yeah, that's right. And then after talking to this guy, let's say you find out that maybe his child died. And maybe he feels God didn't come through for him. And now he's kind of ticked. And volitional doubt is that type of doubt where you have this attitude toward God. You stay on your side of the universe, I'll stay on mine. That's what they call the, the carbon monoxide of doubt. It's the most dangerous, but there's no pain because the person is numb at that point. For that type of doubt, that the deal is, how do I motivate someone who doesn't want to be motivated? Um, now, I don't, I don't think that's you at all. Um, I, don't, I don't see that either. But I, I threw all that out there. I know that's long-winded, but I threw that out there because I think it does help to understand, you know, maybe even thinking of yourself, where does my doubt lie? Which category does that best, does my, does my type of doubt best fall into? It very well could be it's kind of a blend because that's how we are. We're real mm -hmm. people and we're not compartmentalized that way. But even in terms of self-evaluating, asking yourself those questions, where am I in this? Would more evidence really help me? Or is it something more than that? Um, what do you think about that? What are your, now that I'm done with my long-winded explanation, what, <laughs> what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> um, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't just say for sure, hey, that's, that's me, or the, the other one is me. I think it's more, as you said, like, um, you know, a mixture of more things, um, but um, it's definitely something um, I'll want to think more about um, because, yeah, it's just I never thought of it that way. Like there could be different reasons why and maybe um, different approaches someone should take based on. Um, why they don't believe or why they doubt. Yeah, it was really interesting and that's definitely something that I'm, 
I'm gonna try to think more about and like you know something I might want to learn about myself. <laughs> Why do you have a hard time believing in God, Lou? I feel like um, you know how last week, um, <laughs> two weeks said, ago, whenever, <laughs> yeah, uh, some time ago, <laughs> um, Stephanie said that when she was 17, she gave God one week, like a trial time. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like, and, um, Ellen, you said, um, well, back that you used to have like a week when you were uh, totally a believer, one week where you were, were an atheist, right? Um, yeah. I feel like I, I, I relate to that. As I said in the first episode, um, we, we had, um, it's kind of really a back and forth for me. Yeah. And I feel like I tried um, more than once to kind of give God, it sounds bad, but like to give God a chance, you know, get, give all of this a chance and just say, hey, okay, I'm, I'm open, um, but maybe give me a sign um, that I'm yeah. not just, you know, I'm, I, you know, when you tell a lie so many times that you end up believing in it too? Sure. Yeah, that's what I want to be sure I'm not doing. That's like that's, that's understandable. I I I hear where you're coming from. I really don't want to convince myself of something and believing that that's the truth, and then at the end of my life saying I I did that to myself. Like I was the I yeah. pretended all this time without even noticing. Um. So, but. Usually when I, like, um, I, but usually when I kind of just try to open up and um, wait for a sign, things don't go well. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's either nothing or it's something bad. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I'm, yeah. so I kind of end up saying, hey, uh, let's hope that was not God, because then if it was him, maybe he doesn't like me. <laughs> um, yeah. Been there, um, done that. <laughs> so, um, and then other times it's just, I don't see the sign. And maybe I'm, and I don't know if it's because I'm not open enough. I'm just, you know, too scared to just kind of make up the sign for myself. You know, when you really want something to be true and you're just like, anything could be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. Um, um, so I, I think that's a part of it. Um, and I know I cannot be totally sure. I mean, at, at the beginning of um, today's episode, you said that um, knowing and certainty are different things. Right? Yes, knowledge and certainty. Do yeah. not confuse knowledge with certainty. Yeah. You can know something without knowing that you know it. Yeah. And that's I another think, way to think. I of think it. that's something I struggle with. Like, I want to be sure. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of scared of, um, of like, 
like ending up disappointed in what I sure. find or in myself. Yeah. Or like, um, yeah, just going going all, all in and then finding out that just giving up. Yeah. Later. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that um, I I think that's healthy. Um, not wanting to just jump all in, right? Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, you could think, well, I could be talking with a Mormon here who's trying to tell me, yeah, just believe, yeah, you know, or or somebody else. But see, you'll notice that's why for me, I keep coming back to wanting to talk about the evidence. Um, just because someone says something is so, that doesn't make it so. Yeah, I'm worried about whether they have reasons. Um, you know, so I, and I think that's why Janelle just asked, you know, like, you know, can, can you tell me why? Because if I could determine why, um, maybe I can give you something that'll be helpful. Now, make no mistake. I don't, I know I'm not coming into this conversation, even with the goal of thinking by the end of this conversation, I'm going to be able to help out Lou and she's going to become a believer. You know, I, that, that, that's not my goal. And it, you might remember this from our very first conversation. My goal is a lot more modest than that. All I want to do is put a stone in someone's shoe. You left one give last time, I think. Okay, good. I remember <laughs> asking her. She's like, yeah, I got a stone in my shoe now. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, that, that, that's good. I hope. Um, but uh, but yes, yeah, so th that's all I want to do. I want to put a stone in someone's shoe to give them something worth thinking about it. That's going to keep poking at them in a good way. Something that that all but wow that's a good point and think about that because that's how it happened with me Lou um I didn't go from agnostic to Christian in like six seconds that's not how it happened with me I had different conversations with people and even sometimes when I had conversations they would make certain points I wouldn't even necessarily concede them um but I in my quiet moments of reflection I remembered that's all I want to do for you I want to help to put a stone in your shoe um you see, I, I, I think as Christians, you know, often we, we're, you know, we'd like, you know, we, we're going to go out and evangelize and lead people to Christ. And yeah, obviously we do want to do that. But I think far more of us are gardeners than we are harvesters, right? Um, we're planting seeds. There was one part in the Bible where Jesus told the disciples, you are harvesting where you did not sow. In other words, other people came before you and did the work. And now you're kind of reaping the benefit of that and you're kind of leading them to, to Christ, you know, with this long process of thinking and processing. Um, you know, so that's, that's my only goal. Um, but uh, I understand wanting to be intellectually honest. And I think that's good because let's face it, the heart cannot exalt in what the mind rejects. I get that better than anybody. Um, you know, so what I want to do is I want to remove that obstacle for you the best I can. So, for instance, if you're like, well, I'm not sure there's a God. Well, okay, well, let's talk about where some of the, uh, let's talk about where it comes from. I don't think certainty by itself is the problem, because if you're looking for absolute philosophical certainty, you're not going to find it for anything. Yeah. For example, can you give me an argument that you're really here right now and not a body hooked up in a matrix with electrodes going into your brain and all of this is just an elaborate virtual reality? No. Can you give me an argument to prove that's not the case? You know, I, I can't give you an argument either, but if, but if I see a car coming, I'm gonna to step to the side of the road, even though I can't prove to you philosophically I'm not inhabiting a virtual reality. 
Um, can you prove to me with certainty that the past is real? How can you prove to me that we weren't all just created five minutes ago with an appearance of age along with memories in our brain of events that never actually happened? How are you gonna prove that to me? You can't be certain, so I guess what? Do I, not, do I not believe it? How can you prove to me that your cognitive faculties are for the most part reliable? You can't give an argument for that. To give an argument is to assume your faculties are reliable to weigh the merits of that argument. Um, how are you gonna to prove to me um, objective moral truths? How are you gonna to prove to me that the, the Nazi doctors and what they did in Nazi Germany was morally worse than what maybe doctors in our current Western civilization do? How are you gonna prove that? Um, the most basic things that we assume are things that we can't prove with absolute, absolute certainty. But just because you can't have absolute certainty doesn't mean you can't have adequate certainty. Does that make sense? Yeah. So don't get hung up on certainty because if you were hung up on certainty, you can't believe anything. Um, you can't even believe that we're real. You know, there, there's, a, there's a, an interesting view in philosophy called solipsism. That's the idea that the only thing that exists is me and my thoughts or me and my experiences mm -hmm. and that everybody else around me is just fake because how are you going to prove their real existence? Again, you, you can't prove you're not inhabiting a virtual reality and you're the only thing that exists and everything in front of you is just an illusion. So, I mean, if you hold to that high of a standard, you're not going to be able to prove anything. So if you don't hold that high of a standard on anything else, you can't hold it with God too. Having adequate certainty is sufficient. Um, and for that, I think I can help you. I, I, I can give you some some good information, but I first have to know the why before I can give you the what. Mm -hmm. um, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, of course you cannot be certain of anything. I mean, you trust. Um, I mean, I never, I never really thought of how much trust you just put in everything you know for sure um but it's true we don't really yeah. do like you just know because you because it makes sense but yeah lou i was gonna i, I can ask a couple wrap-up things but mm -hmm. did you ellen just offered to address like factual type stuff um, is there anything like in terms of God's existence or the resurrection that you're like, Oh, okay. To hear that. So, um, uh, for example, one thing is that, um, you, you talked before about how you don't believe in, and by that God created the earth and, um, you know, in six days. Right. Yeah. Um, the thing is that, um, I, I, I do believe really in science and, you know, like, how I, I, I do believe in that. Um, mm -hmm. I can all show you the proof, but <laughs> like, that's, that's, sure. I, I really do believe um, that for sure. Um, like, for sure, in my opinion, you know, um, the earth wasn't created in six days like that, but um, it makes sense to me that some people, um, can I say, 
okay, then, you know, the Big Bang happened, but why? And the, and the answer to that why for some people is God. And it, it makes total sense to me. Like, yeah, that's a, that's a possible answer. Um, but is it let's, like- let's, let's stop there. Let me stop you there. Maybe that's one we can go on. It's a possible answer. What would be a, an alternative possibility? Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. Like, I'm not expert. Like, I have. I'm, like you said before. Like, it's a. It's like saying, um, how do you prove we're not in a in a matrix right now? Um, there's no like, there's no way I could give you an argument that, you know, actually answers that question, and um, so I could say like, yeah, before that we were in a, in a matrix, like, um, what I'm saying is that, um, even if I feel like I'm more of a same science, uh, like a science person from that point of view, um, I wouldn't yeah. argue with someone who said, um, yeah, but the reason why that happens, God, like, I would. Okay. Let's, let's talk about that. Since you brought that up, let, let's go over that mm -hmm. one. Um, so this is what is often called the uh, Kalam cosmological argument, right? Um, it has three premises and it's a good one to talk about because the premises are so easy. It's short and anybody can remember it, right? Um, premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. That's where we can talk about that one as well. Three, the conclusion, Therefore, the universe has a cause. And then you do a conceptual analysis of what properties that cause would have to have for being the cause of the origin of the universe. So to take a little trip down memory lane, in 1917, Albert Einstein applied his general theory of, of, of relativity mm -hmm. to the universe, right? And when he did so, he was dismayed because what he found was either a universe that was, uh, that was either expanding or collapsing in on himself. And that was just... Uh, uh, anathema to him. So he fudged his equations. He kind of put a little uh, 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 cosmological constant in there. And as a result, the universe became balanced on a razor's edge, where even the slightest change, the slightest transport of matter from one side of the universe to the other would cause the whole thing to, e whole thing to either um, you know, expand or implode, right? Well, during the 1920s, two other people, um, a Belgian astronomer, and I think it was a, a Russian mathematician, Alexander Friedman, and uh, uh, George Lemaitre, each independently uh, took Einstein's equations and applied them to the universe and found an expanding universe. Um, and it became derisively referred to by Fred Hoyle as the Big Bang. It was uh, actually a term of mockery at first. Now, more and more evidence came to bear. Um, then you had Edwin Hubble and he would shine his light on distant galaxies and find that they were in the redder end of the spectrum, which this kind of worked kind of as a Doppler effect. It meant that the galaxies were receding away at great speeds, um, also showing the universe was expanding. Then you had the great abundance of light elements, which could not be, which were best explained by the explosion. Then you had the cosmic background radiation, um, which was predicted in the 1940s by George Gamow and ended up being found to be the case. They, they theorized if, if the universe really did expand this way, 
initially and when the, the heat was very extreme in the beginning, there should be a cosmic background radiation and lo and behold, there it is. So here's the deal as far as the evidence goes, um, cause see prior to this time, people hated that idea because see before this, everyone thought the universe or at least you know, many, many atheists, scientists and so forth thought that the idea of a God was unnecessary because the universe was eternal. It was eternal, uncaused, incorruptible, and indestructible, and therefore always was. So when it was found that the universe had a cosmic beginning, this was very dismaying because it smacked of divinity, right? Because think about what properties the universe, as, as the cause of the universe would have to have. And if we define the universe as all of uh, uh, contiguous space-time reality, then the cause of that would have to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, non-physical, and enormously powerful. Because if it was any one of those other things, it would be part of the universe to be explained. Well, then the question becomes, what type of entity could fulfill that criteria, could have those type of properties? Well, I can only think of two. And one would be an abstract concept or abstract object, like, like a number, if you believe that abstract objects exist in some weighty sense, or an unembodied mind. Well, it can't be an abstract object because part of what it means to be an abstract object is that it doesn't stand in causal relations. And number seven doesn't cause anything. So that leaves us with an unembodied mind, which gives us a um, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, non-physical, enormously powerful, personal cause of the universe, or what some people would call God. Um, I often tell people like in my church, and I one time heard my, my buddy Wayne make this comment. And I loved it. Um, it's a little bit oversimplistic and kind of hyperbolic, but it makes, it makes its point. Sometimes I'll talk to believers and they, they hate the Big Bang. They think that contradicts Genesis somehow, and it doesn't. But I'll say, you know, there's only two types of people who don't like the Big Bang. The Christians who don't understand it and the atheists who do. Um, but Here's the thing, and you can look at the causal explanation in another sense too. Um, causal explanations can be of two types. It can be a scientific explanation in terms of laws and initial conditions, or it can be a personal explanation in terms of an agent and his will or, or volitions. So for example, if I walk into the kitchen and I see a kettle boiling on the stove, you know, I can ask my wife, why is the kettle boiling? And she could say to me, well, because the heat of the flame is being conducted by the copper bottom of the kettle uh, to the water. And what that does is that causes the molecules to vibrate more violently until they're thrown off in the form of steam. She could give that answer, or she could say, because I'm making a cup of tea, would you like some, right? The first would be a, a scientific explanation in terms of initial conditions. And the other one would be a personal explanation. And both are, 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 are equally uh, legitimate, although there's some cases where one would be an appropriate one and the other wouldn't. But here's the thing. When it comes to the first physical state of the universe, um, it, 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 it can't be a scientific explanation in terms of initial conditions because it is the first physical state. There's nothing prior to it from which you could deduce it by natural laws based upon those prior conditions. So the only kind of causal explanation that's available would, would be in terms of an agent and his volitions. And that again, gives you a personal creator. Um, or take another way to look at the cause. Um, I think it's the only way in which you could explain 
um, how to get an effect with a beginning, the universe, from an eternal cause. Because think about it this way, if the cause is sufficient to produce its effect, then, they, if, then if the cause is always there and permanent, then the effect should also always be there and permanent. So for example, if the cause of water freezing is the temperature being zero degrees Celsius, then if the temperature were, before, were below zero degrees from eternity past, it would be impossible for the water to just to begin to freeze a finite time ago. Any water that was around would be frozen from eternity. So if the cause is there, its effect must be there as well. So how do you get a cause which is permanent and eternal and an effect like the universe, which only began to exist 14 billion years ago? And the only answer to that, uh, to that dilemma, as it seems to me, is that the cause is a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will who can therefore create a new effect spontaneously without any antecedent determining conditions. So, I mean, th those are three independent arguments for what kind of properties the cause of the universe would have to have. Um, so like for, for that, I would ask somebody, what's the alternative? And here's the thing, they could maybe, well, maybe there's other models of the universe that show it eternal. No, there's not. All of them are shown to be not tenable. You first had the oscillating universe, you had the steady state universe, you had black vacuum fluctuation theories and all that other kind of stuff. It doesn't work. So that's just one argument for God. And I'm giving it in very broad strokes. I mean, you can really get to the nitty gritty on that. Um, I mean, that's just one. So what I would say to somebody is this, you know, Plato once said the unexamined life is not worth living. And C.S. Lewis one time also made this comment. He said, if Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. I mean, my goodness, what could be more important? The only thing it cannot be is just moderately important. So what I, would, what I would encourage you to do, challenge you to do is seek this out. Really dive in. Because if the Bible's right, if you seek, you will find. Um, I know it happened that way for me, but don't let your emotions get in the way either. Follow the, follow the reasoning where it leads. This is very interesting. I remember um, what was, who was once the world's foremost philosophical atheist, uh, Antony Flew, who died, <clears throat> I think in, I think it was 2005, but he was an atheist. Um, very uh, formidable atheist. And I remember him and Dr. Habermas would have various debates and they would talk about the resurrection. And um, toward the end of his life, he became, he became, he came to believe in God. And this was a, this was scandalous to the atheist community because, and, and people were trying to say, oh, it's just like this because he's losing his marbles or whatever. And he's like, I've always followed the reason where it led. He says, why are they saying this? Interact with my arguments. Just don't hurl insults at me. But he was somebody, he didn't want, he didn't want the universe to be like that. He didn't want to believe in a God, but the arguments forced him to get there. Now, as far as I know, he never became a Christian. He was just a deist. In other words, he believed that there was a personal creator that stepped back. I'm, I'm hoping maybe on his deathbed or before anything happened, he gave his life to Christ. I don't know. Um, 
but I, I, I think one of the reasons God gave us a mind is to chase after him. And I think pursuit is the proof of desire. Um, I'm going to stop talking. Final thoughts on that, Lou? I, um, I, I agree with what you said um, about the universe. Like, I really, I really spent a lot of time, um, you know, um, think about it. I, I so I, I go to a STEM school, kind of. Okay, so um, I remember you talking about what is that? What does that mean? A STEM school. So um, there are like different kind of high schools in Italy. When you're 13, you need to choose like a field you wanna kind of like kind of spend more time studying in, right? And um, so, and there are like different levels of high school, like more um, kind of um, work-oriented ones and more like academic ones, right? And the academic ones are divided in like STEM. So you kind of like um, have a lot more scientific classes, like science classes, like hours of like math and physics and chemistry and biology and all of that. There are more like classical studies, like Greek and Latin and, and that and all that kind of stuff. And um, I go to a to this kind of scientific school. Um, we still do we still do Latin actually. I I have Latin and like philosophy and all of that, but I also have a lot of um, math and chemistry and physics and um, so um, especially my high school experience I um, I thought a lot about um, the like okay science gives provides me the how but it doesn't tell me the why of things sure. right and it's not yeah I don't think it's the purpose of science a lot of times um, agreed so, I mean, um, Galileo himself said that um, that's not, his, it was in his place to say, right? Um, yeah. And I, I do agree that no matter how much, like um, an, a theory that like we talked about in class, I don't know who said it, I don't know. <laughs> like, I know nothing about it, but I just remember talking about it, about how um, our universe might um, be, the result of another universe kind of like imploding on itself or um, being yeah. destroyed by something, right? But then there's again the question, okay, how did that other universe start? Right. Um, it so just it's pushes like, it back a yeah. step. So, um, yep. and as you said, it's really like <laughs> you cannot run out of options, right? Um, uh, in like saying what happened like why and um so that's something i go back to quite often and yeah i'm and i'm i'm like saying that i do believe it's really possible that the reason why the big bang happened and all of that is because um there's a um, greater mind right it doesn't i'm uncomfortable with it um it's just then um describing god what i'm have more issues with i guess not really describing but like okay there's okay let's say that 
there, mu there must be a reason why we're here. I mean, there must have been a cause, right? Um, and, but it's saying, okay, um, how do we know? <laughs> Again, <laughs> how do we know for sure? No, um, <laughs> um, um, I guess my struggle is um, more saying, okay, if, okay, let's say that there's a God, um, then like my problem would be um, can saying, yeah, I, I, I think um, they are actually um, describing the being that uh, made the universe. And something I sometimes struggle with is saying, okay, there's a God, but like, how do I know he cares? That would be where the evidence behind the resurrection would come in. Yeah. Okay. So, I don't. So, Alan. Yeah. Sorry. No, 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 no. This is so good. I know that you've been where Luke's at in a lot of ways. Yes. You've wrestled with some of these same big questions. I just want to say I'm going to share in the show notes an article that helped me because I am not a STEM person at all. If I had the choice of where to go to high school, I would have gone to the artsy fartsy one where I didn't have to do history. <laughs> uh, for people like me who might be listening, yeah. I just want you to know I'm going to share an article by Eric Metaxas that was in the Washington uh, or uh, Wall Street Journal, I think it was, seven years ago. Very good. That science increasingly makes the case for God. Excellent, excellent article that really helped me in, in very layperson terms. But Alan, um, I know we've already taken almost two hours of your time, um, and I, I want to be uh, be cognizant of that and also allow people who are listening to this to really hear this. Would you share what you found irresistibly compelling about the story of the resurrection um, yeah. and why why you ultimately surrendered to, to Jesus, why you took that? Because I hear what Lou's saying. Like, she doesn't want to buy into... I mean, we've been on a right. little bit of a journey together, right? We've talked to yeah, some yeah. really amazing people. Um, these thoughts are probably percolating pretty heavily in her mind at night. I don't know. She hasn't yeah. told me for sure. But, you know, I would think that they would be. We've talked to people who, Stephanie, who used to be an atheist. We talked to Drew, who found freedom in Christ even after, you know, dealing with same-sex attraction and all these different things. We talked to Tarian, who talked about hypocrisy. These are things that are uh, hard to just, you know, have an experience and then just walk away from. But sure. ultimately, it does hang on the resurrection. It does hang on, did he, does he actually care? Does God actually yeah. care? And so just getting to that, I'm wondering if you could share, because I know that you've wrestled with this. I know that you have a lot to say on it. Um, but if you could give the flyby uh, version, that would be fantastic as well. I'll do my best to give the flyby. I, sometimes it's hard to know as how much detail okay. to give you versus not. <laughs> um, so I, um, okay. So when it comes to when it comes to um, trying to mine our data, our historical data, our sources for what we can know about Christ, um, if you look at um, ancient history, we find. Jesus mentioned in both Christian and non-Christian sources, mm -hmm. probably about eight, uh, 18 of them, right? Of, th th there's 18 of non-Christian sources altogether. Um, and just by using those sources outside the Bible, one can construct a very general outline of Jesus's life uh, without even opening the pages of a Bible at all. Um, however, the earliest and best sources we have are in the New Testament itself. And that's where we have to start our investigation. Now, most lay people aren't gonna understand 
that procedure. If you talk to someone on the church, uh, pardon me, on the street, they think that if you look at the New Testament documents, that you're somehow reasoning in a circle, using the Bible to prove the Bible is true. But that's not at all what historians are doing when they study the New Testament. They're not approaching the Bible like some holy and inspired book at all. Yeah, they're, they're approaching, approaching it, it as, as, a, a, as a book, as a, a source. Not even just one source. They're looking at it as a collection of documents. See, I, I, I personally don't even like the word Bible when talking to these conversations. People think of it as a book. It's not. It's a whole bunch of manuscripts from different times and places all compiled together. When you think about how the Bible is put together, it was written by over 40 different authors, 40 different generations over like 1500 years, over three different continents, Asia, Af Africa, and Europe, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, um, that all unfolds in telling this remarkable story of Jesus Christ. I mean, that itself makes it incredibly unique. Take just one contemporary book to this in this century on one topic, right? Um, and ask yourself, if you had 40 different authors that talked on one topic, would any of them agree? How many of them would agree? And here you have all of this together and they're just all in harmony. Um, but at any rate, what they're doing is they're looking at these manuscripts, trying to tell if any of them bear the earmarks of historicity or any portion of them do. And, and that, that's why it's important to remember that once upon a time, there was no such thing as the New Testament. They were just these separate documents, manuscripts coming down out of the first century about this person named Jesus of Nazareth. You had like, okay, here's a manuscript, got Luke's gospel over here, an epistle written by this figure named Paul and so forth, right? And the early church, the church only chose those sources which were earliest or closest to Jesus and the disciples and discarded those later ones that came far afterward, like the apocryphal gospels, which don't show up until the second half of the second century, right? So when we look at the gospels, um, well, I shouldn't even say when we look at the gospels, a lot of people assume what I'm gonna look at is the gospels because that's where we get their resurrection narrative. I'm not gonna to touch them. Um, now, I think a good historical case for the resurrection can be made from the gospels. Um, the Gospels generally believed or are believed to have been written 40 to 60 years after Jesus's crucifixion, which most people agree was in AD 30 or 33. The more popular date is 30. Um, now that alone, by historical standards, would make it really early. Um, if you think of the, um, the best biography we have of Alexander the Great, wasn't written until 400 years after Alexander by Aaron and Plutarch. Yet scholars still look at that and reconstruct it with confidence um, and think that's reliable to give us information about, um, pardon me, I say Plutarch, I meant Alexander the Great, to give us information about Alexander the Great. Here you're looking at 40 to 60 years, but I'm not even gonna look at that because we have an earlier source in Paul's letters. And what you'll find is that, and I'm only, I'm only gonna use what's called the minimal fact approach right? I mean, I'm only going to use that data that virtually every scholar agrees with. I don't mean just the Christian ones. I mean the atheist, the agnostic, the Jewish, all of them. And virtually everyone, even if they don't accept that Paul wrote all 13 of the epistles that are ascribed to him, virtually everyone will um, argue that he did for seven. And those seven are Romans, First and Second Corinthians, um, Galatians, First Thessalonians, and Philippian and Philemon. 
all right? Um, and that's more than what we need to build a good case for the resurrection, to show that we have good historical reasons to believe it happened. So from that, I'm only going to set those things that hit two criteria. One, um, it has to be multiply evidence from a number of different angles or different reasons for me to accept it as a fact. And two, it has to be so strongly evidenced that it has convinced the vast majority of New Testament uh, scholars to also accept it as fact. And by vast majority, I'm talking 95 to 100% of them. And by New Testament scholars, again, I'm not talking the Christian ones, I'm talking everybody. Atheist, agnostic, Jewish, and Christian, everybody. When you hit something historical that meets those two criteria, historians say you've hit historical bedrock. You've hit historical pay dirt. And from that, we can derive at least three different facts. You can actually go into more. I think y'all said y'all talked to somebody who gave 10 different facts, and I, I think you can go 10, 12, or whatever. I'll limit it to three. The first is this. The first fact that nearly every, that virtually every um, historian accepts is that Jesus was crucified on the cross by Pontius Pilate. It's multiply attested, it's early, um, it's about as sure as an historical event that you can get, all right? The second fact, believe it or not, is that the disciples had experiences which caused them to believe that Jesus appeared to them in individual and group settings after the crucifixion. Um, that's actually not a controversial statement. That might surprise you. Virtually everyone agrees with that. Now, the best explanation of that fact, they'll disagree about. But that fact itself is affirmed by everybody. Um, also, three, that Paul, a hostile skeptic, converted on the basis of his sincere belief um, that Jesus appeared to him, rose from the dead. Many people go further. They talk about, you know, James, James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in him and then did. Um, the majority also set that as a fact. I don't typically. No way, um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. The, yeah. The brother? <laughs> the brother of Jesus. Yeah, now, if okay. you're a Catholic, you're not going to believe him. Brothers. That's right. No, I like um, it's just something I never heard. Yeah, so yeah, it, in, in the Catholic tradition, they'll they'll use the word, you know, because there's one part in Mark chapter three, where it talks about Jesus's mother and brothers mm -hmm. um, came thinking he was crazy and wanted to get him to leave. Um, you know, so I think the Catholics will say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean siblings. That can mean like cousins and oh, okay. things of that nature. Um, you know, so that, that would be a difference. But, um, Anyway, many people will, are, will mention James. I actually don't. The reason I don't, unless things have changed now, the majority did believe that was a historical fact, but you had only like something like maybe a couple dozen people writing on James. I didn't think that's a bit as, don't think that's a big enough of a sample size to really be compelling. I, I, wanna, I wanna really be, I wanna give the skeptic, the skeptic as much, skids concede as much as possible. Um, so, Here's the deal, um, and I'm, I'm still speaking in broad strokes here because I'm aware of time limits and that we're trying to kind of do this for a popular audience. <laughs> but um, there, uh, in Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, and virtually every historian will agree that Paul wrote that letter. 
um, he says something very interesting. Now there's parts in the New Testament that are creeds that virtually every historian believe is a creed that predates the New Testament. Um, sometimes Paul will say, what I received to you, I'm passing on. And that would be rabbinic terminology indicating that it's creedal. Another creed would be in Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 11. That was considered an ancient hymn. It's called the Kenosis passage. If you ever hear anybody say, well, the early church didn't believe Jesus was God. Yeah, no. If you read that creed, it predates Paul's letter. And it talks about Jesus being in the very form of God, considered equality with God's not something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the role of a servant. And, um, you know, it also talks about the end of that, how every knee shall bow, every tongue confess about Jesus, which is copying Isaiah 45, which is speaking that words about Yahweh. So they're identifying Jesus with God even that early. Also Romans 10, 9, which we mentioned, that's believed to be a creedal passage. Um, but 1 Corinthians 15 is very interesting. Um, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3 and following, um, Paul says, you know, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And again, that terminology indicates the passing on of an oral tradition that predates his writing that letter. Now, Paul is believed to have written that letter probably sometime around 55 AD. Um, and he mentions his first visit to Corinth, which everyone believes was at 51 AD. That's one a date everyone's certain of because there's a particular leader that's mentioned um, in the letter. And we found, uh, uh, archaeologists found that leader's name paved in the stone. And we know that when you held that particular office, it was only for one year. So we know it was in 51 AD when he came. Um, and see, this is interesting because with Paul, the gospels come 40 to 60 years after ground zero, the crucifixion. With Paul, you're talking, you know, 18, 25 years after. You're talking early. Um, and um, in that passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So in this passage, and, and I know I mentioned this last time, but I'll, I'll kind of go over it again for the sake of anybody hearing this that didn't hear the, our first episode. Here you have in this passage, Paul is saying that he, Jesus appeared to three individuals, Peter, James, and himself, and three groups of people, the disciples, you know, the 12, a group he calls all of the apostles, and then 500 brothers at one time. So you have Jesus appearing to both individual and groups. Um, and you see in Paul's old story, which we find in Galatians, he tells us that after Jesus appeared to him, he went away for three years to Arabia. And then after that three years, he went to Jerusalem. He met with Peter and James to get acquainted with them. And the word for get acquainted with is the Greek word hysteresi, which is where we get our word history from. So what this suggests is that Paul went there not just to shoot the breeze, but to do a historical, uh, um, to do an, an investigative inquiry about Jesus. Because Paul didn't live 
with Jesus and the disciples. He wanted to know, probably know some of the deeds that Jesus did, things he said, right? So he met with them. Now we read later that after he left, he came back 14 years later. Now that's either 14 years after um, his conversion or 14 years after that first visit, we don't know. So we're looking 16, 19 years later. He comes back to Jerusalem again, and this time meets with the pillars of the church, uh, Peter, um, James, and this time John. And he runs past them the gospel message again, what he's teaching. Uh, so he can tell them, because he can make sure if he's teaching the right thing. If Paul were here today, we would say he was obsessive compulsive. Um, just going back and making sure he's got it right. And he said they gave him the right hand of fellowship, which basically means good to go, man. He got it right. Way to go. Keep going. Right? So here we, here we are, um, just that little bit of time after the crucifixion, and Paul is preaching the same essential doctrines as the Jerusalem apostles. Now you might say, well, that's Paul saying that. How do I know he's not lying? Well, you're right. As a historian, I can't prove that with certainty. But historians aren't dealing with certainty. They're dealing with probabilities. And we do have some information that strongly suggests that Paul wasn't lying. In 95 AD, you had a guy named Clement of Rome. And Clement wrote a letter to the Corinthians. It's called Clement's, it's called First Clement. We still have it today. And Clement was believed to be a disciple of the apostle Peter. Then in 110, you have Polycarp. Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippians. And he's believed to be a disciple of the apostle John. So it will be very interesting to hear what they have to say about Paul, because they mentioned it in, his, in their letters. If Paul is teaching something different from what Peter and John pre preached, well, in Clement, Clement places Paul on a par with his mentor, Peter. He calls them the great pillars of the church. And then when Polycarp talks about Paul, he says, Paul accurately and reliably taught the message of truth. Um, he calls him the blessed Paul, and then quotes from his scriptures a couple times and calls his letters a couple times and calls them sacred scripture. This isn't the type of language that you use of somebody who is preaching heresy. It is what you say of somebody who's preaching the same things that your mentors taught you. So at any rate, all with that in the back of mind, one, we can kind of see where Paul got his information about the individuals, Peter, James, and of course he knows himself, he saw Jesus. But how do you make sense of the group appearances of Jesus? Um, all of this strongly suggests this is not something that's just some sort of psychological phenomenon. So, Again, all historians, by all, I mean 95 to 100%, somewhere there, except that Jesus died on the cross, his disciples had real experiences. Um, his disciples had experiences which made them believe Jesus appeared to them in both individual and group settings. And here you have Paul, a hostile skeptic, who converted on his basis of believing Jesus appeared to him. Now comes the part where we talk about method. Those are the facts. With method, a way to determine what's the best explanation of those facts. How do we determine that? Well, historians typically do this by using what's called the argument to the best explanation. And this is what we talked about last time. They look at things like explanatory scope. Um, in other words, does the hypothesis explain all of the data or more of the data than rival hypotheses? Um, we look at explanatory power. Does a hypothesis explain the data without any um, strain or ambiguity? Does it fit easily, right? Um, is it ad hoc? 
Um, a hypothesis that has less ad hoc information is to be preferred than one that has more. Ad hoc basically means you're making non-evidenced assumptions. All right. And then plausibility is the fourth one. Is it in line with generally accepted truths? Things that we also know to be the case. Um, one of the things I mentioned last time is usually um, the most uh, beloved explanation by atheists and naturalists to explain away these three facts or is that the disciples had a hallucination, right? Um, so we've got to ask ourselves, how well does that hypothesis account for these three facts? Well, there's some things you've got to know about hallucinations. They can happen within six modes. You can have a visual hallucination. That's when you see something that isn't there. You can have an auditory hallucination. That's when you hear something that isn't there. You can have a kinesthetic hallucination. That's when you feel movement and there is no movement. Uh, you can have a, um, an, an olfactory hallucination. That's when you smell something for which there's no external reference. And then you have, can have a, a, a gustatory hallucination. That's when you uh, smell something that isn't there, right? Most people only experience a hallucination in one of these modes. Usually if it's more than one mode, they're usually on drugs or something like that. Um, well, so who's most, most likely to have a hallucination? Well, studies show that people who are most likely to have a hallucination are senior citizens bereaving the loss of a loved one. 50% of them have a hallucination regarding that loved one. Now, the majority of them, 14% of bereaving adults, just sense a presence of that loved one in the room. That's what they, that's what they, um, that's what they claim. 7% of them are uh, experience what they might call a visual hallucination, all right? So let's ask ourselves: um, what are the odds that these three facts can be explained by a grief-induced hallucination? Well, does this, this hypothesis account for fact number one, Jesus died on the cross? Well, yeah, absolutely. They're grieving, maybe that can cause someone to hallucinate. Does it explain fact number two? that the disciples had experiences that caused them to believe Jesus appeared to them in individual and group settings. Not so easy because a hallucination is a private thing. It's not shared, right? Um, I think I mentioned last time, it, it's like a dream. I can't go to sleep and have a dream that I'm in Jamaica, which is where I'm gonna be a month from now. I'm very happy about that. But I can't have a dream I'm going to go to sleep and be in Jamaica and then wake up and tell my wife, go, hey, I'm dreaming I'm in Jamaica. Go back to sleep. Let's have a free vacation, right? That's not going to work um, for hallucinations, um, especially when you come to the group hallucinations. There is no non-anecdotal evidence for group hallucinations anywhere in the literature at all. Um, so what do you have already? Already, this hypothesis lacks explanatory scope because it's not accounting for all the data. And by the way, someone like Paul isn't grieving. Um, you can't say if he had a hallucination, it was grief induced. He's not grieving at all. So not only does it not fit the qualification of explanatory scope, it doesn't account for all the data. It doesn't fit the criteria for, criterion for explanatory power. It doesn't fit it easily. To make it fit, like say like Paul, I have to say, well, maybe he was feeling guilty. And that caused him to have this hallucination. The only problem is, is that's a completely non-evidenced assumption. It's ad hoc. In fact, he does nothing but give us evidence to the contrary in both Galatians and Philippians. 
talking about how he was a zeal persecuted the church, um, studied under, under uh, 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 Gamaliel. It makes no sense why he would turn from that. He had all the prestige and the respect that you could possibly imagine and turned away from all of that. Um, so it's also ad hoc. And also it's, it's implausible because it's not accept, it's not, it doesn't go with generally accepted truths. There are not, no non-anecdotal non -anecdotal evidence of group hallucinations. And that's the most famous one that naturalist puts forth and it doesn't pass any other criteria, not one of them. So we can talk about others. Some people say, well, maybe the disciples steal the body. That doesn't work either. Liars make very poor martyrs. Virtually every historian you talk to will agree that the disciples were willing to suffer and die for what they were proclaiming. Um, now you might say, well, there's lots of people willing to suffer and die. Look at all these Islamic terrorists. Yeah, that's different, and here's why. With some of these people from these other religions, they might be convinced of the truth of the religion after talking to somebody or brought up that way, and that's why they believe it. The disciples believe this because they claim it was what they saw. So they were in a position to know and were so convinced that they were willing to suffer and die for it. So you, you, you can't implicate the disciples. Um, you know, so how does the resurrection hypothesis work for explaining these three facts? That Jesus really did rise from the dead and appear to them. Does it have explanatory scope? Yes. Does it explain? Well, fact one, yeah, he had to die to rise, yes. Um, you know, does it explain the individual and group experiences of him appearing to them? Yes. Does it explain Paul, a hostile skeptic who was not grieving whatsoever, converting on the basis of his experience of Jesus uh, appearing to him? Yes. Does it account for all those things easily and without strain or ambiguity? Does it have explanatory power? Yes. Is it guilty of having one shred of being ad hoc, making any non-evidenced assumptions? No. The only one that you could possibly say, well, wait a minute, what about plausibility? Right? I mean, we don't, that, that doesn't go with generally accepted truths. We don't see people rising from the dead. I'll agree right up that it's completely implausible to believe that someone would rise from the dead due to natural causes. But if Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't due to natural causes. It was due to a supernatural cause that God raised him from the dead. And I would argue also that God is not ad hoc. There are many great examples for God's existence. Um, some of which I just mentioned and went to a little bit of depth about the Kalam cosmological argument, um, but also the argument from intentional states of consciousness, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, now look at it this way. I, I love how Mike Lacona puts it this way. He goes, what if somebody says, can your son walk across the pool water? And I'm like, well, the, the prior probability of that happening is basically, you know, no, it, it wouldn't. Okay, well, what if I held his hands and made him walk across the, the, uh, the, the water? Oh, that's not fair. You're cheating because you're an external agent. Oh, I get you. God raising Jesus from the dead would have no bearing on everybody else not raising from the dead due to, to super uh, naturalistic causes because God's an external agent. It would be a supernatural cause um, helping him across. So I, I, I'll stop there, and I'm kind of jumbling through this, trying to figure out the best way to do this in a quick way. Usually when I teach this, it's over the course of several weeks um, with different audiences as I have, or at least a whole hour for this. So I'm kind of trying to go through it as quick as I can. Um, 
but but here's here's what I want to challenge you on, Lou. And I and and I, I realize I'm throwing this all on you for the first time, so I don't expect you to be like, you know, like, well, let me tell you, this is how I would answer. Criticism without alternative is empty. Um, so if if someone wants to say maybe it's possible this didn't happen. I'm going to ask, what's your rival hypothesis for explaining those three facts? Um, and you'll be surprised. Many atheists don't even want to go there. No, 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 I'm not going to answer. Why? No, because you're going to you're back me into a corner. Well, give me something. Give me some, some other plausible alternative to the resurrection hypothesis. And they don't because they realize how hard it is. Um, so I guess that would be my, my question. If the, if the resurrection hypothesis, it, let me put it this way, if there's another naturalistic hypothesis that better accounts for those three facts than the resurrection hypothesis, let's hear it. What do you think it could be? Do you have to answer? I have no idea. I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, you were asking, you're like, one, okay, one, how do I know if there's a God? But two, how do I know he's personal? That's how you can know he's personal. That's how you know who this God is. No other religion has that kind of evidence. You don't get it in Islam. You don't get, you don't get anything like that in, in Buddhism. Of course, in Buddhism, there is no belief in a, a, a personal transcendent God. You're not going to get that in the Hindu religion. I challenge you. Check me on that. See if you do. You're not going to find it. I'll stop there. Any thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say some final thoughts and then we'll wrap up with our final question. I have a couple of final thoughts too at the end of that. Um, sure. It's really hard to just, you know, wrap up final questions. I mean, it was a lot. Uh, <laughs> but, that was a lot. I admit that was a big <laughs> mouth load. So, but um, yeah. um, it, it was really like, it was really interesting. I mean, I feel like I say it a lot, but I actually mean it. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, um, a lot of the, uh, the things you said um, make um, make a lot of sense. I mean, even from a historic point of view, like, um, so I don't really have an answer. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, yeah, it was definitely, um, I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but um, like it, it's definitely like um, intellectually challenging conversation that we just had. Um, so definitely something to think about. Um, yeah, you know, and 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 the the thing I would challenge on just make sure it never ever becomes just an intellectual thing. Yeah. Um, because there's lots of people out there. It's almost like it's almost like God is just a you know um, just something to prove. Mm -hmm. It's like I, I can't tell you how many other apologists that I've met where it's like that's their only concern. It's like they, their hearts. It's it's all about propositional affirmation, and it's not about a heart change or a relationship. Having the knowledge is important, but it's only valuable insofar as it enhances your relational 
knowledge. Um, it's only uh, it's only beneficial insofar as it actually leads you into a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think sometimes that can get easy, be very easy to miss the forest for the trees in that respect. Um, I remember one of C.S. Lewis's book, it's called The Great Divorce. That's a really cool one to read if you'd like. Mm -hmm. It's an it's kind of like, it's a, it's a witty updating to Dante's Inferno. Since you mentioned Dante, yeah. this is very different from okay. what you're thinking of Dante. But it's kind of like a, a bus ride from purgatory to heaven, a heaven that many of the people who are in purgatory don't want to go to. Um, you know, and uh, in one part, you know, uh, one of the angels says to one of the person on the bus, you know, who just, who only cares about arguments and facts and syllogisms. And the, uh, the protagonist of the story goes, wow, that's rough. And the angel goes, you're closer to it than you think. He says, I've met many people who travel the whole world um, just wanting to make converts, but never give a thought to Christ himself. Or I'll make people who are more passionate about arguing for God's existence, but come to care nothing for God himself. Hmm. Um, a person can make an idol out of almost anything. Um, you know, an idol is anything that's more fundamental than God to your meaning, identity, or happiness in life. Um, and what that means, an idol doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It just has, it can be a good thing, but it's a good thing that's made into an ultimate thing. And what's awesome about Christianity is if you follow the evidence where it leads, you find who the ultimate thing is. You find that he's what life is all about. Some other great arguments, um, some of the things that, that Gary Habermas talks on too when he's talking to, to naturalists is he, he's the only Christian peer reviewer for the only uh, peer review journal in the world on near-death experiences. That's some cool stuff. Um, and he says, you know, I'm not interested in the ones where the people see the bright light or whatever. And he says, could be true, don't know. I'm only interested in the ones that are highly evidential. I'm interested in the ones where the person dies and all of a sudden they go to the hospital roof and they see like a red high top and then they, they get woken up and they say, go upstairs on top of the roof of the hospital. You'll see a high top with a shoestring out and blah, 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 blah. Um, that's the kind of stuff I love. Or uh, Craig Keener has a book called Miracles. It's a two volume set. And Keener catalogs all the miracle claims all over the world. It's fascinating. One that's particularly cool is this woman. She has a diseased spleen and she has to get it removed. She gets it surgically removed. And I think she's Russian. I think she was Russian. She goes to her church and they pray for her because she had to go for a post-op checkup. Her church prayed for her. And by the way, there were pre and post um, x-rays or CAT scans, MRIs or whatever for this particular scenario. She goes up for her post-op checkup after they prayed for her. She's got a perfectly well spleen back. Now, what do you do with that? You have pre-X-ray disease, disease spleen taken out, post-X-ray, perfectly healthy spleen back after you just removed it. What do you do with stuff like that? Um, one of those stories talks about a physician. I can't remember where this was. There was a boy about to be operated on and a pastor came, he, the boy had a club foot and a pastor came and he asked the surgeon, do you mind if I pray for him real quick? The surgeon goes, yeah, go right ahead. But the surgeon, the surgeon was not a Christian, by the way, who gave this story. He was not a believer. I think he probably is now. Um, but he, as he was praying, he goes, I cheated, I peaked. And as the pastor was praying over this boy, I watched his foot unfold and go to normal. Never seen anything like it. 
So things happen. What do you do with that? That's, that's a book I think anybody who's interested in this needs on their bookshelf. That's phenomenal. Um, so don't think God's not doing things in the world today. Some of these, even like double-blind prayer experiments, that's pretty cool. The paradigm, parad uh, paradigm, paradigmatic case of one happened in a San Francisco hospital back in 1982 through 1983, uh, conducted by a guy by the name of Randolph Bird. He was a cardiologist. And I think it involves something like 400 pages. You can find it in a medical journal. It's in the Southern Medical Journal, I think volume 81, um, written in there. And it was a double blind experiment. And what he, he had them do, he sent surveys asking people if they would be open to being prayed for. And you, you get the usual responses. Some people are like, well, I mean, I'm an atheist, but you're welcome to. And he chose nothing in that first one, but just evangelical Christians. Um, well, Christians, both Catholic and Protestant Christians to pray for these people. Now, here's the thing. The patients didn't know who was praying for him, not the doctors either. So it was double blind, but they monitored these patients in 26 categories. And the one who were, ones who were prayed over did better in something like 22 out of the 26 categories um, versus the ones who weren't prayed for at all. You, you, have to, you have to wonder about the ethics of that. I'll be honest, like, we'll pray for you, but not you, you, but not you. But it, it's interesting. So now in the, in the medical journal, this is a secular medical journal, they have in the abstract, this shows that prayer to the Judeo-Christian God causes a positive response in the well-being of patients in a coronary unit. It was tried again later um, by a different, a different group who wanted a more politically correct group of prayers. And they chose people from like third world, witch doctors, stuff like that. <laughs> this was interesting. If you were prayed for by one of those people, you did slightly worse than the people who weren't prayed for. <laughs> um, really interesting. Then I did another one later, I think in Kansas City. This one was like 2000 and it was just Christian prayers again and it mimicked the first one. So it's not like there's not evidence. You just gotta be hungry to look for it. And I think that's one of the reasons God, again, God doesn't just make himself plain. He's interested in free lovers. I think we need a lot of heart exercise. And again, for those of us who want him, I think we're given sufficient evidence to have our beliefs justified. But he doesn't give us so much evidence for that those who don't want anything to do with him are forced to feign loyalty. Um, I think that's the kind of God we have. Such a good conversation, Alan, as always. And um, I'm just thankful you came back. Well, Lou, you've got the final so, question. Finding something real is about a journey towards finding restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love of those things that you can, that can be found in the relationship with Jesus Christ, which stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? I, again, I'm gonna answer like I did last time. I mean, I can really answer any of them, but I'm gonna say authenticity because for me, it all comes down to, is it true? Um, and I'll never forget something C.S. Lewis said. He says, a lot of people think that you're coming to them asking them to accept Christianity because you think it's good. He goes, I don't give a rip about whether it's good. I only care whether it's true, because if it's true, there's nothing more important than this. And that means that my life is missional, that this life is just a blip on the radar screen. Life hasn't really begun yet. Um, this is just a speck. So um, that's, what, that, that's what life is all about to me. If I'm convinced it's true, I wanna share this with everybody because I, I want them to have this same wonderful thing that I've found in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Alan and Lou, thank you so much. Thank you. Until next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.